Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Human Odyssey podcast. I'm your host, Skander, joined always by your friendly neighborhood, Jamie. And today, we're traveling to the forests of Germany to talk to a very, very special guest. The song you're listening to is Bam Bam by the amazing German artist Eloquent. I really recommend you go check him out. Today, we've got someone who rose to prominence on the world stage for her rescue refugees in the Mediterranean, as well as her successful attempt to respect and uphold international maritime law above that of national law at Lampedusa. She's an ecologist, a conservationist, a master mariner, a polar scientist and sea rescue activist, and dare I say, she still haunts Matteo Salvini's nightmares to this day. Please welcome Carola Rackete. Carola, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing really well today. and um, Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for coming. So you've told us uh, just before this that you came back from a very special forest. Can you tell us a little bit about that before we kind of delve into maybe your past and your areas of expertise uh, I think we'd like to know maybe what you're doing at this moment. Yeah, at this moment, in the past weeks, I've been quite engaged in the forest occupation in Germany. I'm not usually living here at all, but that project is really important and symbolic. So the German government wants to construct yet another highway through an old growth forest quite in the center of Germany. And there's treehouse occupation in these old oak and beech trees, there's definitely more than 80 of the tree houses. And the government started to cut these old trees in the beginning of October, while activists are constantly blocking them by, well, either blocking their equipment or just sitting in the trees, putting up tripods and um, climbing in between the trees. So slowing them down quite considerably. But of course, um, our plan here is to talk about the fact that we really, really need to speed up, not only to be talking about climate action, but really to take climate action and to stop any of these infrastructure projects, not only that particular highway, but basically all infrastructure projects which are not falling in line with the Paris Agreement or with any of the biodiversity strategies. So that's that's the point. It's really a project about the transport transition which we need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, just yesterday we were, or I can't. Oh, is it two days ago? Uh, in this kind of uh, pandemic days, I, I lose track of days sometimes. Um, we were just talking to uh, Danny Harris from New York's uh, transport alternative uh, organization that tries to get cars off the roads. Um, you you mentioned, I think, in the Garden interview. Uh, for about this, that there's not really any need for this uh, autobahn. Or this, uh, just so I can get it correct, this autobahn is going through the Dannenroder Forest, uh, right, which is quite just north of Frankfurt. Um, is there? Do you think that there's any need for this autobahn? Is there any need for more roads in Germany, or even just more highways? Well, we haven't infrastructure planning cycle there for about 10 years and there's about 600 more roads planned in that time frame and I think we do not need any of them because the landscape is already very fragmented and we do have 
a lot of roads absolutely everywhere. And basically, if you invest into that type of infrastructure, you're locked in for several decades. Um, so it's a very general question. What type of transport do we need for the future? And the answer is pretty clear. We need transport, which is in line with reducing emissions. And that means we need to invest into train infrastructure. Actually, a lot of train infrastructure in Germany has been um, reduced in the past decades. The investments have all gone into roads instead of train. And we see the results of that today. And we're basically locked into this mechanism where the courts are saying that um, we have to continue with these plans which have been made for that autobahn 40 years ago. And there is no way that we can actually update them, taking into account that we are full on in a climate crisis. And that is a very general problem, um, not only for that infrastructure problem, but for any infrastructure project. And I think it's not only a problem in Germany, but basically everywhere. What do we do with all these contracts and plans which we have made? And there needs to be a mechanism to just put a moratorium, stop everything, and then reconsider taking into account what we know about the predicament that we are in and just to drop the plans which don't make sense anymore. You know, And in terms of infrastructure, it's pretty clear. If we build infrastructure for, for bicycles in the city, we've seen that in Paris, then people start cycling. If we build infrastructure um, for cars, you know, all these parking lots in the city, all the space on the roads, then people will use the car. But instead, if we invest in the train, people will use the train. And if we would make public transport free, people would use it more. So it's really first investment into the type of infrastructure that we want. And then will people just use it because it's convenient and comfortable and because it's there. And that's why at some point we really need to stop and confront the government over these useless less projects which are going on everywhere. Um, it doesn't mean that this project in itself is really particularly special, but it's just symbolic for hundreds of projects in Germany and around the globe, which do not make sense anymore at the time of human history that we are in. Yeah. And just before we go into um, to this idea of governments maybe being able to, and actually showing through this COVID crisis that they're able to make drastic changes, uh, I just want to quickly continue with the the Danenroder forest. Um, the Autobahn is projected to take down oak trees that are about 250 years old, as I understood it. Um, and while the company in charge of Deges, I, I hope I'm saying that right, uh, says that Deges, I, I, I don't know, I, I don't unfortunately uh, speak German, <laughs> says it will relieve uh, congested roads and that it does not pose an existential threat to the woodland. They say they'll cut about 3% of the forest down. That the oak trees will make up only about 8% of the trees to be felled. Um, and so to be fair to Degas, they did say that they promised to reforest 85 hectares of woodlands, as well as setting up 10 new pond habitats for endangered species. But then to be fair to Mother Nature, um, 85 hectares of new woodlands surely does not have the same um, natural capital let's say as 250 years old oak trees it just does not have the same importance and and surely cannot just be replaced like that um by by offsetting i was wondering maybe what 
what the attitude is like, uh, what the thinking is like within the activist circles, because you have been among them um, about these kind of plans that the company has to to reforest and to to offset. How do people feel about this? Well, it's part of the current legislation that for any type of infrastructure project, you need the environmental impact assessment and so on, and you need to um, offset in a certain way. But it's basically very clear for ecologists that offsetting of an ecosystem isn't possible. If we think of an old oak, and of course, not all the oaks there are 250 years old, but Mm -hmm. a percentage of them is, such a tree can support 2,000 different species of insects. Mm. And now if you see these places where they just plant young oaks to maybe five years old, they cannot support for several hundred years this amount of species diversity because they're just completely different. They're just way too young. So it would mean that we would have to wait for 2,270 to roughly replace yeah. that ecosystem that we just described it's completely ridiculous and by it's then not, germany might be underwater who knows i think we would not recognize germany or any other place in 250 yeah. years anyway no matter what happens but you cannot replace an old growth tree mm-hmm. by planting a new tree it's, it's just not the same it's a ridiculous idea really and if we look at the five biggest drivers of biodiversity loss around the globe and the, the first one on land is habitat destruction and habitat fragmentation. So it's exactly what the German government is doing in this case. And of course, in Europe, you often like to think that we are uh, doing particularly well and better than other countries in terms of climate or biodiversity mm-hmm. conservation. But really, um, just a week ago, two weeks ago, there was an assessment of um, the biodiversity strategy for the last decade that were 20 targets the UN had set themselves for this decade. And actually on a global level, they failed each and every one of them. But then yeah. if you look at Germany, which implemented that in their own national strategy, Germany failed 19 out of 20. Mm-hmm. So it's really not the case that we should look so much at other countries and tell them how to uh, protect biodiversity. If we really want to do that, we have to start and at our doorstep, really. And it's all these small little projects combined. You know, if somebody says, oh, this is just a small part of the forest which we're taking, but they're taking small parts of forests in many, many places at this very yeah. moment. It all adds up. And what it what it's adds up to on a national level and what global level is that biodiversity is getting diminished at an accelerating and accelerating rate and we are in a sixth mass extinction and we have to change the way that we behave we can't just go on like that so um Deges uh, made a statement that they'll cut only three percent of the forest down and i guess trying to show how little an effect it it will have so are you saying that this is a severe understatement of the of the real effects of this project or an oversimplification well it only tells you how much they cut for that particular road but it doesn't tell you about the habitat fragmentation what means for wildlife which cannot cross anymore what it does mean for genetic diversity of species 
which can't mm-hmm. cross anymore. It doesn't tell you about the pollution. It doesn't tell you about global heating from the car emissions and all these things. So um, if you would look at that single forest, then of course the people who want to build this highway will always tell you that it's just a small road. It's just, it doesn't matter. But the problem really is that we're building many of these roads. Yeah everywhere it's, it's, it's a symbol time. as well of, of the fight it's, isn't it? it's adding up and that's the problem it's really it is about this old growth grows forest and you want to protect it but it's also really about a very very general shift in how we build infrastructure projects which ones we build how we would actually manage to transition to another type of planning for infrastructure which is in line with the paris agreement and as I would say, with the biodiversity strategies. And that is the very general shift which you would need absolutely everywhere because when the German government now is saying, hey, if we don't build this road, we, we kind of break the contracts which we have with the company and the court approved this project and all these things. Then at the same time, we have to see if we build that, we're going to break the Paris Agreement. If we build this road and all the other roads, we are going to break the Paris Agreement. So it's really about which rules and which laws are we going to break. Yeah. We have, to, we will, we will break rules in either case. And I think the question is really which ones are more important. And of course, I would say that the life and survival of people around the globe um, is incredibly more important than a highway which has been planned for forty years in an area where actually. Um, the trail lines have been removed, you know, decades ago. So it's really about the bigger picture of how we can turn things around and that we have to start making a turn. We all understand now if, if we have polls, yeah, uh, climate is an important topic. It's sometimes even the most important topic for voters. But it means that from all these nice words, we have to swing into action and actually have to stop damaging infrastructure projects. And I found it really interesting when in the UK, the court stopped the Heathrow uh, airport extension saying that this type of infrastructure project wasn't in line with the Paris Agreement. You know, of course, there was a local uh, opposition for decades as well. But what the court ruled was that this infrastructure project is, is not compliant with Paris. And that, what, that is what we would need everywhere. Like really, that would be the very general shift that we would need. And we cannot um, continue with plans which do not make any sense anymore at this moment. Is the, is the, the Dan Rudder Forest not protected in, in any way? Or, or again, is this kind of a, an example of what you mentioned being a one law kind of uh, being above another? Well, the interesting part is that um, they want to fell in three different parts, in three different forests, and one of them, called Herrenwald, is protected as a Natura 2000 site. So it's a type of protected mm-hmm. area which exists all across the EU to a certain standard. And if you want to do any type of construction, in such a protected area, you need really good reasons and you would need to have a project which serves the general public interest or the overwhelming public interest. 
And of course, I would argue there is no overwhelming public interest in a highway anymore in 2020. Mm-hmm. But the interesting part in the details is that neither the German court nor the EU court actually wanted to prove whether that overwhelming interest actually exists. So we're kind of stuck in a legislation and um, yeah, court process where the responsibilities for checking aren't actually clear. But if you present that case to an average, the average person in the street, then they would say, what's the interest in 2020? You know, but from the court side, it's not so easy to say because both the courts actually reject the responsibility for even checking whether the really? overwhelming public interest exists. Yeah. So really, we have a, an issue with our democracy and our legal system as well. We are stuck with a legal system or a political system, of course, which was made in the past. Maybe it made sense in the past, but it needs to be updated to fall in line with the present situation. And I think that's always the case with any political system. It's not particularly new that the system and the laws kind of lag behind the actual reality in in a culture. That's the same with, let's say, voting rights for women or rights to marry for homosexual people and all these things, right? The society is already there, but the law is still kind of lag behind. And that's the same with the climate crisis. Like our legal system, which we're having at the moment, doesn't allow for this type of emergency update to um, check all the infrastructure projects, which we would mm-hmm. actually need at this moment, because the legal system has been made in a time where climate crisis didn't exist. Mm-hmm. But but in some ways, the, the the COVID crisis has shown that we do have that ability to, to react to emergencies that we deem to be emergencies, or at least that the people in power deem to be emergencies. So, so, I don't know. I, I wonder how can we, how can what, what we would really need for the climate crisis to be mitigated and and maybe not solved because I'm not sure it's even possible to solve the climate crisis. But for for us to actually take real action, seems to me like we would need to take the climate crisis on the same level as we do with the coronavirus crisis, for example, and really take immediate actions that are nationwide and and strict and but what do you think is missing then that we would kind of see both as as emergencies well i think one of the differences with the covid 19 is that it affected the global north very quickly directly after china and it affected the economy of the industrialized nations And unfortunately, the climate crisis, first and foremost, at this moment, affects the global south. And they are not responsible for the emissions of the past and not responsible for the emissions of the present, only to a very, very small degree. 92% of the global emissions since the industrial uh, industrialization come from the global north. Uh, Germany, for example, is the fourth highest emitter of all nations. So... Uh, we are not suffering the fourth highest impacts of the climate crisis at all, not as anyone else in Europe, really. So the countries which are responsible are not feeling the impacts at this moment. And I think um, a lot of our life is organized around the economy and the idea 
that would need economic growth in order to have good lives. And if something impacts on economic growth, the governments are quick to react. But if it doesn't, then, and if taking climate action is seen as damaging to the economy, then I think the governments are extremely reluctant to do anything because they do not like to take into account that the climate crisis and the damages which it creates will have huge economic impact in the future, but also that it's this economic system, this belief in um, ongoing economic growth, which has brought us here. And that it is that system in itself, which has created this huge inequality, which we see around the globe, that actually since the 70s, the global north has increased its distance and income from the global south six times. So even the fact that the uh, GDP is growing all the time, it doesn't mean that we are creating well-being for everyone. It just means that people are getting quite rich and most of them are not. And these people also hold power and power is concentrated around them and they benefit from the system as it stands. And that's why they're reluctant to make changes because for them, the system is working. And I think this is why we all have to see that it's not about the facts of the climate or biodiversity crisis. It's a deep power struggle. It's a very, very deeply political problem. And every climate or environmental activist is in a power struggle for social justice and equality. It's not about renewable infrastructure or something. Yes, we need to build that. Um, but it's really, really a struggle against the political elites and it's a struggle against capitalism or any growth-based economic system. We really need to de redefine the targets of the aims of what we build our societies for and what the aim of our economy is. And that should be focused on well-being, providing well-being for the people who live uh, in the country, but around the globe. And I think that's usually quite shocking for people to think about how that could work. But in fact, I mean, countries like New Zealand, Scotland, or Iceland are already doing that with their budgets, and they're already moving into that direction. And we can also see that some countries which have much lower GDP um, than the average in the EU or the US have really good outcomes for the well-being uh, indicators within their society. One of those countries, for example, is Costa Rica, which has just a fraction of the GDP uh, of the US. And I think this general thinking of where are we heading for with our society and where are we heading for with the economy, um, that's core of the problem that we're in as well. And we need a redefinition of what we're actually aiming for. So would you say that um, many governments in the global north accept the science of the climate crisis? It's just more of a um, political reluctance to deal with it pr properly. I think generally the fact that the climate crisis exists is pretty clear. I think it's less clear to people how interconnected everything is at a global level, how fast everything is happening and how destabilizing it will be for the global societies. I think that um, really isn't clear to people just, just yet. And I think any time I read papers on it or read reports on it, it, um, it shocks me how much more severe 
uh, everything is than what I maybe sought to believe the last time that I read something. So I think um, the velocity and the impacts are not really clear to people. But also, I think we're used to uh, building our wealth and our well-being on the suffering of people either in other places or people in the future, because you're basically extracting wealth from the future by consuming so much at this present moment and pushing the impacts to, well, maybe our own generation, because we might still live to be 80 years old. So that's another 50 years for me, for example. So I might experience that. Um, but also what any, any kid, which, uh, yeah, grows up now for sure. And any future generation will suffer tremendously from the decisions that we're, uh, we're making. And the more we are not really acting up on the science that we have, the worse it will get. It's a huge grayscale of what could happen. Yeah, for sure. Uh, do you, um, is it possible maybe for us to get a short description of what it's like, um, like kind of being with those activists at the tree houses and the platforms and the barricades in the forest? Um, and I also kind of want to ask what your personal experience was with the police there, because we've heard reports of the police um, arresting people, destroying, um, destroying constructions and things like that, that the activists have made. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about that, about both kind of what you saw and felt and heard and, and also the police, the role that they play? Well, of course, the forest is being cut by the forestry workers, let's say, but they need the protection of the police to remove the treehouse structures or the barricades. So at this moment, we have between a thousand to two thousand police officers in and around that forest all the time. Um, as usual in demonstrations, if the media is there, the behavior of the police officers is more okay than when they are not there. So my experience is pretty mixed. There were a lot of complaints also within the last weeks by press that actually the police didn't let them into the forest so they couldn't see what was going on. Of course, we have freedom of press and they should be allowed to go everywhere. But often they were held back, um, asked to go to different places to be picked up and being led into the forest. They weren't allowed to walk alone and they lost often several hours without being able to actually go to the spot where things were happening. So we have like really quite a lot of uh, complaints from press themselves, mm -hmm. which, which is quite shocking in itself. And then uh, generally in the forest, the tree houses are kind of organized in, in groups and in villages. There's usually, they're built on the oldest trees. So of course, before the forests want to cut that tree, the police has to um, evict all the people from the tree house. And sometimes they take out the tree houses before, sometimes they then, uh, cut the tree directly but they need uh, special equipment for that they have to bring uh, climbing police all the time some of the tree houses are up to 15 meters high so some of the structures are quite low and you could reach them by letters um, they would be maybe five meters high but some of them are in really old trees and you can only reach them when uh, when you're climbing really 
Yeah. What sort of things are they charged with, um, the people that get arrested? Do you know? Um, usually it's not even a criminal charge unless it's resistance to the police. Sometimes they, um, they get charged with resistance to the police, but sometimes it's just, um, kind of being present in the forest while there actually is an interdiction to enter the forest at this time. Okay. Because they're felling, so they're for that area of the forest, there is no permit to enter. So it's something at a quite low level that people usually get charged with. And I think to my experience, the courts are actually also not too interested to really give people high fines because and then these are environmental activists, these are often very young people fighting for their future. You know, mm -hmm. if you want, I think they're the only ones which are really taking appropriate action uh, in response to the climate crisis. You know, the governments are just kind of driving us down the cliff and they're the only ones who have woken up and actually doing something. And the courts do see that as well. So um, sometimes a lot of people usually do not give ID And if their fingerprints are not known, um, they are just sent away and they are told not to enter the area for could be a day or a week or several months, depends um, how, how it goes. But without this in yeah, incredible amount of police officers, the felling wouldn't, uh, wouldn't work at all. And of course, now with uh, the coronavirus, that also gets more more and more difficult because um, mm -hmm. in spring and also now there were supposed to be custard transports for like uh, nuclear uh, residues and they were cancelled because the government said we can't have that many police officers um, to secure that transport but actually in this forest we have like 1,000 or 2,000 police so right. uh, it's it's quite crazy to even carry out uh, that eviction Uh, particularly when we see that that the um, numbers of uh, COVID patients are going up quite a lot in Germany at this moment. I watched your your TED talk called "Safe Trees and Refugees," and in your TED talk you talked about ecofascism. Um, this is a topic I feel like we don't really discuss much. We don't really find much uh, either in the news or even, to be honest, in environmental circles. I the, at least the ones that I've been in, I don't really hear much about ecofascism. To be completely honest with you, it is one of the things that scares me the most at the moment uh, because it's, I feel like it's a way for fascists to feel like they can, to feel, what's the word? Um, like what they're doing is correct in a sense, at least to, in their own minds because it's backed by this eco-friendliness idea. But I, I think people are kind of still a bit oblivious to to this. Um, have you had any encounters with ecofascism personally? Well, I think in Germany it's quite clear that nature conservation, for example, has never been in or in the past hasn't started off as a progressive topic at all. It's been a very conservative topic. That's of course why it's called conservation, because we like to keep things how they are and we don't like to change anything and everything should live in its own place, not anywhere else. So, I mean, nature conservation itself has been a really strong subject for the Nazis 
a lot of ecologists have argued uh, in the past about differences of races, human races as well. Uh, they have argued for eugenics. Um, one of the founders of the sort of ecofascism is a U.S. American called Madison Grant, who was very interested in the protection of the American buffalo and things like that. But he also said these things like the Nordic race um, should decide who can live and survive on this planet. And he actually coined these ideas of the great replacement of, yes, the, the idea of the great replacement comes from the 19th century from Madison Grant. It's really actually that old and it's now being picked up by the identitarians, for example, which we see around the EU, but also by many other uh, far-right uh, movements and groups. So the idea is uh, is quite old. And I think young people nowadays might maybe think that nature conservation or climate protection is something inherently green, progressive or socialist in a way. But I think we have to remember that in the past, it was always connected to this type of homeland protection, blood and soil myth. Um, and it can get a really, really brown shade to it. And that's also what's happening. Um, quite often... Um, on the ground in rural Germany, for example, there are people from the AFD or there are people from other um, really strong Nazi groups or um, yeah, other far-right groups who try to enter the mainstream through ecology topics. One of them, for example, is the Anastasia movement, which has come out of Russia mainly, because okay. it's founded on a, a book which speaks about a woman called Anastasia who's living in the woods and um, in harmony with nature. And they look like they're uh, interested in permaculture and they're vegan and they're walking without shoes and all these things. And when you see them, you would typically think, okay, these are some leftish hippies. Yeah. But they're actually not because they're um, uh, anti-Semitic very strongly. They believe in this idea that the Jewish people are controlling uh, all the world and and all these conspiracy theories are right in these books and the Anastasia movement for example has in the year, last years come into Germany and into a few more of the central European uh, countries and it's really important for people to understand that these are um, conspiracy right-wing networks mm-hmm. you know, they're um, they're not progressive or green And we have to be aware of that as a climate and environmental movement. And we have to be clear that, of course, we need wide alliances with people, but not with, not with everybody, you know, really not with everybody. And that's very important to, to keep in mind. And if we think, um, that usually, um, the right wing parties would be climate skeptics, then actually, if you look at the analysis, not all of them are, some are. But there are also some who un- who accept the climate science. And they say, yes, the climate is changing. Then they sometimes say it's not the fault of fossil fuels and all these things. But some even accept that. And then they say, well, as a result to that, um, we should just close the borders, you know. And I, what I see in a practical sense is that we could have something like a green fortress Europe, you know, where we just have 
uh, wind parks and solar and maybe some electric cars and whatever. And then we just built a border around this continent and we just let everyone else die who can't survive right there whole place anymore and i mean in a way that's what's already happening because the eu is already carrying out completely illegal actions at the mediterranean or at the land borders on the balkans where they're pushing back people who have already reached european soil where frontex the european border police is facilitating pushbacks to libya a country at civil war because the frontex aircraft is passing on the information to the Libyan Coast Guard about the position of refugee boats. And they push back refugee boats, which are in international water, even which are in the Maltese search and rescue zone, and bring them back to Libya. And that's always the funding and support of the European Union. That's a full uh, network of systemic border externalization, which doesn't even only uh, extend to the cooperation with Libya or with Turkey, but goes even beyond with like uh, states like Mali or Niger, where people are already held back from even uh, reaching the shores of the Mediterranean. And that is what is happening right now and what has been happening increasingly within the last five years. But if we think that the ecological crisis is getting worse and it will get worse, whatever we are doing, it just matters how much and how quickly it will get worse. But then... Um, the question is really what is going to be our response. And it's even the UN, which is saying that they fear that the climate crisis might lead to something like climate apartheid. That's what the special rapporteur on, on climate and poverty said last year, um, because the poorest are most impacted. They don't have insurance for their houses. They don't have money in the bank. So um, poverty will massively increase. And the question is, what are we going to do in these rich places, you know, who have already exploited all the others in the past to accumulate all this wealth? So are we going to open the doors or are we, and that's happening at the moment, giving more and more money to Frontex to def defend the borders, as, as they like to say, from asylum seekers, from people who are running from unsafe places? And is really clear when we listen, for example, to somebody like Sebastian Kurz, who is the chancellor of Austria, um, who has in the last year built a coalition with the Greens. He's coming from the Conservative Party. And in his first um, media interview after his election, he said, this coalition shows that we can protect the environment and the border. And that's somebody in the center of Europe right now um, at, at this point. And that really makes me worry that ecofascism really is what we are heading for, saying that um, we will have this, what the right-wing likes to premise, homeland protection and closed borders. Yeah, sounds like the, the story of Noah's Ark, but just more fucked up and racist and slightly eugenicist. I, I feel like this vision of uh, the green fortress Europe that you're laying out is something that, yeah, personally as well, I, I've definitely seen shaping up. And I just want to give a really quick uh, shout out to Collective Aid, especially uh, or amazing organization working in, in Serbia and Bosnia uh, to help the 
the migrants there. Have you, I, I know that you don't really like talking too much about your experience on, on Sea-Watch uh, anymore, because obviously I, I completely understand you've, you must have talked about it a million times before. Um, but instead of talking about maybe specifically what happened with Sea-Watch, I kind of wanted to ask you what your experience was in the halls of power, because you have been approached by, uh, for example, the city of Paris tried to give you a medal. Um, and I'm sure you must have met with some people in some halls of power. I was wondering what your experience was of how you were received uh, by these kind of people. If there was a difference between kind of how they acted towards you in person or, or how they kind of actually thought how they actually behaved in politics. I have to say that I've actually met very few politicians um, because I see myself regarding the sea rescue really as an activist. And mm -hmm. I've heard, of course, after my arrest, a lot of nice words from people in the German government of how they were going to make changes and find a European solution, which we really need, of course, for distribution of people who arrive. Um, and that we are uh, going to find some ways how the voluntary um, yeah, agreements could be reached so that people who arrive through the central Madrid from Libya could be um, fairly distributed within Europe. But all these are, are just nice words. In fact, the situation now is much worse than it was last year um, because I think what they really have learned from my arrest is that They created a lot of media attention on the topic. They put one person on the spotlight because uh, that arrest was obviously not uh, justified, just exactly as the court ruled later. But now they're just blocking all the ships with technicalities. Uh, for example, at this moment, all the ships are blocked, basically. Six fully equipped rescue vessels from different organizations are blocked at the moment, most of them by Italy. But the, the ships of uh, Sea-Watch, for example, are blocked because of the grey water system, like um, about technicalities, about the the water system and the showers and toilets. You know, so they're basically saying that the ship is not equipped to clean um, the toilets and the showers which the refugees are using. So it's better that they would die unless they um, uh, compare to them using the wrong type of toilet system. You know, so okay. <laughs> that seems to be yeah, the right. biggest danger. You know, that that's that's the way. But um, these technicalities, which the authorities are disputing with all the sea rescue organizations, and for all ships, they're a little bit different. Um, they show that they're really, really, really trying to reduce the rescue capacity. Um, and nobody in civil society, or not a lot of people react to reports like governments blocking ships on technical reasons you know so they have i think become quite a bit smarter than last year because they're very efficient at actually preventing the ships to sail which could rescue the lives of many people because we have shipwrecks still every week uh, we lose lives every week and we could alleviate that But really what's happening is exactly the opposite, the governments. And that includes the German transport ministry, really, which is 
massively trying in the last months to make it more difficult for ships to get the right certificates and to put in force more strict rules um, for technical aspects of the ship, which make it really, really hard for, for them to set sail, even though they're in perfect condition, they have passed the port inspections in the past, and they have been out at sea in the, in the past year, so we're talking about the exactly same ships which they're now uh, trying to prevent to, to sail. I would like to ask what your thoughts were on in whose hands is the political power to implement these uh, damaging projects are. So to be more specific, and I suppose it would be some sort of a mixture, but would you say um, it is majority or you know exclusively um, uh, the result of um, bureaucrats and politicians uh, focusing too much on the immediate economic effects um, of these projects, or would you say that the um, the interests of private individuals, spe- uh, specifically certain capitalists? For, for like a project like the Hambach uh, surface mine, uh, would you say that their interests are being served? They, they're, they're somehow utilizing some sort of political power to have their specific interests served for projects like this? And if so, how how do they do that? And I know it's kind of a long question. Yeah. Well, I can say for sure that in in Germany, the biggest lobby groups which pay most money towards the parliamentary system and the parties are the fossil fuel industries, the yeah. car industry, and the agricultural industry. And we all know that it's completely clear. It's not happening only at German level. It's also happening at EU level. There's a lot of money moving between the industry and politics and the influence is huge and that creates the problem that we are in you know because what is happening in the parliament is not happening for the benefit of the overall population it's quite influenced um, by the interests of certain special lobby groups so we would of course need much much more restriction we need actually an end to um, any type of this lobby money uh, moving from the industry into the pockets of politicians who we have elected. And I mean, that's also the discussion which we have, um, which the Extinction Rebellion, for example, kicked off of creating these citizen assemblies. And France, for example, has done that in the last year, saying that we would have people drawn by lot and um, having like a gender balance, people from different backgrounds, uh, different levels of education, different regions, rural or city or whatever, and then have them discuss, led by experts and with each other for weeks, which could be um, measures which we could take as a society to alleviate the climate crisis or the ecological crisis. So um, putting people um, in charge of discussing the options who do not have a personal benefit or who cannot be re-elected who don't have an interest in their own career, I think is incredibly important if you want to mm, have yeah. benefits for the whole of society. And if we look back to the past, to Athens, where we all think that democracy evolved, they did not actually elect people for the city council. They drew them by lot because they said, if we create elections, 
then power will be fortified in the hands of those people who uh, want to be re-elected and then use the power in the city council to create possibilities for them to be re-elected and getting re-elected and re-elected. And that's the system that we are in right now. So interestingly, in Athens, they never had elections. And I really think that this idea of uh, the citizen assembly could be one uh, stepping stone towards creating more democracy, towards involving citizens more, towards making the measures which we're taking more socially just, you know, and when we see what the French uh, Citizen Assembly proposed, it was very radical. It was a lot more radical than uh, mm -hmm. anything the parliament would have uh, proposed, for example, implementing an ecocide law, um, uh, forbidding all internal flights within France, um, reducing the work week and things like that. So it was really um, well balanced in um respect to the social dimensions of it that sounds really yeah. interesting yeah yeah we'll definitely have to do an episode on uh, bringing maybe someone who who was on that panel or something because randomly selected uh assemblies for me at least are definitely the at least part of the future of uh of democracy i, I don't know how well or if even the state is meant to be run by just that sort of thing but it definitely seems to be a huge part of it there's always that story of um texas i think having had run this uh, experiment with uh, randomly selected people and and how before talking to the experts they were mm -hmm. uh going to kind of increase funding for fossil fuel um stuff and then all these people these randomly selected individuals citizens had then managed to be able to talk to these experts and, and, and do the research and stuff and then unanimously voted to instead move that funding towards renewables after having understood really the, the impacts. Um, I, I want to ask about your involvement maybe a little bit with the, the PI, the Progressive International. You appeared on, on, the, uh, on one of their videos for the summit, the 2020 summit of the Progressive International. For those of us, for those of our listeners that don't know what the PI is, uh, it's very briefly a sort of broad coalition of progressive forces uh, and, and parties and, and groups, the organizations that try and work together to further progressive values and ideas on the sort of global scale by working together. Do you think that this sort of alliance and organization is kind of something that we need and that we, maybe we haven't had in the past few decades? Um, I, I feel like, you know, it, it kind of gives me hope in some ways, I want to say, to see the PI working on different topics and trying to help, for example, in Bolivia or, or in the UK and, you know, do different work in different places altogether. But it also makes me... I don't know, I guess I always look at these kind of leftist uh, projects with a hint of, of what's the word, of, uh, I, I try not to be too naive that, that this will change everything, you know, because I feel like we've seen this sort of thing before. Uh, I was wondering what your attitude was towards that. Well, I would be quite surprised if this was the initiative which would change, change everything. You know, I yeah. don't think a single project ever does. Um, but I do believe it's, a very useful initiative. I think any sort of networking between different groups is important because a lot of people really still work on in silos or on different yeah. continents or regions. 
And I think the idea of the Progressive International is really to create a structure where um, already existing movements, unions, political parties, individuals, groups, and so on can network and connect on topics. And I think I'm supportive of any of these types of approaches. And what I really like is the idea of not having to agree with each and everything within that initiative, because mm -hmm. we know that the left also has a bit of a tendency to discuss about purity and who is doing the right type of left politics, right? Um, so, and I hope that we will come through with the fact that here we will have a quite broad coalition and we're not going to be left or, or kind of struggling with this infighting so much because I think that's extremely damaging. It's also something which I sometimes see within the environmental or climate movements that this infighting might weaken us on the whole. And if we see that the right wing is actually organized quite well, also on an international level, then we definitely need similar efforts on the progressive side. And I think rather than um, not doing it, we should definitely try to. And I think the network is really expanding um, quite strongly. And there's a lot of um, interesting initiatives in there. It's just still quite really new. Um, yeah. It was launched less than half a year ago. So I think the more members um, it can bring on board, uh, the more it can grow and actually do something useful uh, for people. I suppose... Just, just as for closing remarks, um, I'd like to ask you, what would your advice be to people who kind of open to this problem and kind of accept that, for instance, uh, the project to build the motorways is uh, definitely a problem? What, what would be the first step for them to combat this? I think it's really important to connect to existing groups or build a new one if you can't find one. But I think a lot of people feel overwhelmed because they feel alone confronting all the problems in the world. But I think connecting to groups and initiatives which are already working on something um, is really key because not a single person of us can take on um, all these issues which we have at the moment. So connection, I think, is very, very important. And makes it much easier to um, to continue because we really have to see that we're not in a um, yeah short uh, struggle where we will invest a lot of energy and commitment for like one year or so. The problem of the ecological crisis, of the social injustice, and everything which stems from that will be with us for the rest of our lives. So there's absolutely no way that we can do that on our own. I think having human connection and stable groups to, to work with um, and have, having the possibility to support other people and get support from them is incredibly important to sustain engagement and sustain activism for a longer time period. And that is unfortunately very, very clearly what we are all um, looking at. Yeah. Any, uh, any sort of groups or, or people you'd like to, give a quick plug to well of course in germany the easiest is to directly visit the forest <laughs> yeah. which um you you can find easily uh on twitter for example but also on on their blog um 
maybe we can link that in the description of the podcast mm -hmm. or something. Yeah, we'll do. Um, but I think it's really important, no matter where you are, to understand that it's not only the natural science facts which are interesting to know, it's the social science as well which we need to understand and to know. And there we can see that it's really radical action which can shift civil society in a much quicker way than reformist approaches and that we do need to take these uh, civil disobedience actions or that we need to occupy these trees just as an example because all these other things which have happened before all the petitions this writing to your parliamentarian and demonstrations with your banner and all of that they haven't helped anything much in the past 30 years so we can basically just uh well i wouldn't say stop doing them but be very very clear that they are not going to change much in the future and that from the social science analysis we need to take more radical steps like that's the way that the civil rights movement actually um got the success which they had in the end You know, because they took actions which at that time when people were looking at them were seen as too radical mm -hmm. and which a lot of people at that time actually didn't agree with. And now we see that it's exactly those actions like the Freedom Riders, the Land Counter-Sidents and so on, which have brought the success to these movements. And that's what I always encourage people to um, to be aware of and to read up and to really understand, like read the science of social movements um, I think it will have a huge impact on anyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can protect a good call, I think, of good call to arms to kind of protect nature and people. Uh, Carla Rakete, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. And uh, we really, I think, wish you the best for all of your future endeavors, whether it's uh, going to the Arctic poles again, which uh, honestly, I'm, I'm so jealous. It's something I've always wanted to do. And I, I plan on doing it at some point. Um, and yeah, take care. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, yeah, have a great day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Human Odyssey podcast. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions. So please head either to our Twitter at our Human Odyssey, to Instagram at the Human Odyssey podcast, or on Facebook, or even you can send us a good old fashioned email at humanodysseythepodcast at gmail.com to let us know your deepest, darkest secrets um, and also your thoughts on the episode. You can find all of our links on linktr.ee slash the Human Odyssey podcast. That's linktr.ee slash the Human Odyssey podcast. And that includes our Patreon site where you too can donate a few bucks a month to get a multitude of rewards including early episode access bonus episodes requests live stream hangouts and of course shout outs speaking of which big thank you to our loyal crew members nadia shadia tommy and pablo for their help guiding this odyssey we love you very much